Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Well, let's open God's Word now. Revelation chapter 12. Mike, I know we were having some technical difficulties. Am, am I up? Do I need to shout? Okay, you can hear me. Good. Wonderful. Revelation chapter 12 is where we're going to be. I want to remind you a little bit of what we learned last week. Last week, we learned that we have come, we came to the end of one of the visions, one of the seven visions in the Revelation, and we've begun another vision. And in this particular vision, it's going to take us through seven signs. So we went from seven seals to seven trumpets, now we're in seven signs, and as this new vision begins to unfold, it takes us all the way back to the first coming of of Christ. All of these visions are declaring to us what is to take place during the church age between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, and this one just makes it very clear the, the baby that was born, that was trying to be devoured by the dragon, that baby was Christ. And, and this vision is helping us to understand what he has accomplished for us in his coming. So maybe that's not the way you were taught this book, if you've ever been taught this book, but that's what we've been consistently learning as we've been going. And today we're going to be in the middle of this vision about the woman and the dragon, and it's going to start in verse 7 for us today. So If you have your copy of God's Word, just follow along as I read it, then we'll pray together, and then we'll study it. So here's what John writes to us about the vision that he is seeing in verse 7 of Revelation 12. Now, war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard in a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. This is God's word. Would you pray with me before we study it any further? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it reveals to us about you and your holiness and your glory and your power and your majesty and your sovereignty. We thank you for what it reveals to us about ourselves, about our brokenness and our our fallenness, about our rebellion and what's going on in our hearts that leads us into sin because our hearts are corrupted and sinful. 
And we thank you that you don't leave us with that bad news of our own identity apart from Christ, but you, you point us in the direction of your loving mercy that's revealed through Christ our Lord who came and lived and died and rose again and was called up to heaven with you because he had accomplished everything that you sent him to accomplish, which is the full redemption of all of those who believe. I thank you this morning that we can confidently come now to your word as sinners, but saints who've been born again by your power, and we need to learn what you have revealed to us about how we can live for your glory in this world. So would you do that? Would you teach us? Would you accomplish your purpose through the preaching of your word, and not only teach and instruct your saints, but also draw men and women and children unto you? I pray that the gospel would be heard clearly, that you would accomplish your saving purpose today, But I also pray, Father, that you would unsettle us where we're settled and we need to be shaken. I pray that you would afflict us where we need to be afflicted and that you would comfort us where we need to be comforted. Have your way with us now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. To any student of history, especially the history of warfare, one significant point of study must be those battles that turn the tide of war. Wars consist of a series of battles that uh, move one side or the other closer to overall victory. But from time to time, a battle develops that decisively shifts the entire course of the conflict. For instance, in the American Civil War, It's reported that it had claimed the lives of more than 600,000 American soldiers and civilians. Countless battles were fought across this nation, but the clear turning point for our civil war was the Battle of Gettysburg. The Battle of Gettysburg took place July 1st through the 3rd in 1863. And the climax came on the third day when General Lee ordered a full-scale infantry charge into the center of the Union line. And he did this knowing that the Confederates had to march for an entire mile of open fields before he would ever meet the enemy. And they were going to be under artillery fire, under musket fire, before they could ever breach the Union lines. And that particular decision was doomed and it failed miserably. And General Lee believed, and you may have read this, you may have studied this at some point in history, General Lee believed, and he was quoted in multiple places as saying that he believed that the divine hand of God would make his army invincible, and therefore they could make it across that line and they could accomplish their purpose, but it was generally, it was a rash action and it resulted in the death of over 6,000 Confederate soldiers in one skirmish. In all, in those three days, in July 1st through 3rd, the Southern Army lost 28,000 troops, and General Lee would never again lead an invasion into Northern Territory. That civil war turned on this one battle. In World War II, The turning point for the Pacific Theater came at the Battle of Midway, 
Some of y'all have seen a, a recent movie maybe that's come out about Midway, or maybe you've studied that in history. This battle took place only seven months after the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. The Japanese Navy was intent on establishing themselves as the naval and air authority in the Pacific theater, but thanks to U.S. Navy codebreakers and to U.S. Admiral Nimitz, y'all probably heard that name, he, he developed a, a brilliant battle plan, and and through those things, the might of the U.S. Navy won the battle and turned the tide of the Pacific War. Gettysburg, Midway, and countless others, but these were two battles in U.S. history that changed the course of a war, and they are remembered in history for their contribution. No battle is unimportant, but it is safe to say that some battles are more important than others. As we read the scriptures, we read of many battles that take place, many fights, many skirmishes, but the undercurrent of the scriptures is that there is a war going on in the background that we don't often recognize. The war is between the host of heaven And they are drawn up against the devil and his angels. And this war began when Lucifer rebelled against his creator. And battles have been fought many different times and in many different ways. Some of those battles have been fought in the unseen realm of heaven. Some of those battles have been fought on the plains of earth. But the same war is being fought even though all of these different skirmishes are taking place. This war has been fought for millennia and it is to some degree still going on. But John tells us here in Revelation chapter 12 that the decisive battle, the decisive battle that has turned the tide of war, that battle has been won. The enemy has been defeated and he knows it. The battle that turned the tide in this supernatural war was fought by one man on a hill outside Jerusalem called Calvary. And that's what this section of this vision is all about. In our passage this morning, John sees a vision of a war arising in heaven, and he tells us about the two sides that have faced off in this battle, and he helps us to understand, he makes clear to us that the decisive blow has already been dealt. And that means that the dragon has been soundly defeated, but he's still plaguing the church in some way. So we have much to learn this morning about this particular passage of Scripture. Let's go back to verse 7, and let's see how this war arose. Verse 7 tells us, now war arose in heaven. And just think about that phrase for a minute, war arose in heaven. This sounds like the first line of an epic work of fiction, doesn't it? And we don't have to imagine much when it comes to war on earth, right? We We have the film to give us something for our eyes to see when it comes to war on earth. We have access to war footage and photography from World War II, actually even further back than that, all the way down to the present day. And from the images of war, we, and, and the firsthand accounts of those who fought in those wars, we have some understanding of the fact that war on earth is a hellish experience. But in order for us to comprehend a war in heaven... We're going to have to engage our imaginations a little bit. It's not something we see. Artists have tried to create images to depict it. Authors have tried to write stories to 
describe it. Digital gaming companies have even put together role-play games to try to help us experience it. And, and who's to say if their efforts are anywhere close to the mark? But one thing we know for certain, a war arising in heaven would be an amazing sight to behold. And John is doing his bit to try to help us envision what he saw that, that Jesus has revealed to him. And he starts by letting us know that war arose in heaven. And it arose because Michael initiated it. Look at the text again in verse 7. It says, now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. Now the Bible is not silent about these beings, but it doesn't give us the kind of detail that most of us would prefer when it comes to the supernatural beings we know as angels. We know they fall into the category of created things. They're created beings because of it's all over the scriptures. Psalm 148 verses 2 and, and 5 talk about them uh, being part of the created order, spoken into existence by the power of the Almighty. In Colossians chapter 1, the apostle Paul tells us that Jesus, the agent of creation, was instrumental in bringing them to being. He says this, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible things and invisible things, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And that, that terminology, that phrase right there is referring to spiritual beings. He says all things were created through him and for him. So we know that these angels, Michael included, they, they fall into the realm of the creaturely. We have the creator and then we have everything else. And that's the realm that they fall into. We know that some angels dwell in the presence of God. We've already seen that as we've studied through the Revelation. We saw that back that there's these seraphim that stand in the presence of God. And we learned about them all the way back in Isaiah chapter 6. We know that some angels are designated to be ministering spirits because the scriptures tell us about them and their role. Some are tasked as messengers to bring a message from God to human servants. Some specific angels announce the unfolding of redemptive events like Gabriel. You remember Gabriel, right? He was the one who came to Mary and to Joseph to announce to them that the, the Christ was going to come through her. The Bible even tells us that some of these angels walk among us as strangers in need. And by our hospitality, we entertain these angels unaware of their true identity. That's from Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 2. And some of these angels, perhaps all of them, we're not real sure, but they are referred to as the host of heaven. And whenever you see that language of the host of heaven, you know we're talking about the army of heaven, the army of angels who do battle on behalf of God's people. We know also that there exists some form of hierarchy when it comes to the angels, um, because one angel specifically, the angel Michael, is referred to as a chief prince among them. God himself is referred to as the Lord of the heavenly host, but Michael is referred to as the prince of the heavenly host. And in more than one occasion, he is leading the host of heaven in battle, and he is named specifically. Now, within Jewish tradition, Michael is known as the special protector over the nation of Israel. He serves as a guardian angel 
of the entire nation of Israel. But here in Revelation 12, we see him as the warrior leading heaven's army against the dragon. And this is not the first time we've seen Michael in his role of battling against the spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly realms. In Daniel chapter 10, we see Michael initiating cosmic conflict. He, he battles alongside a mysterious being known as the Son of Man, and he battles in such a way that he's, he, he lets us know that he's fighting against the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece. Some of you are familiar with that passage. It's, it's somewhat confusing, but what we believe is taking place there based upon the context of what's happening is that Michael and this being known as the son of man whose identity becomes relevant and clear later on, they are doing battle with the prince of Persia and the prince of of, of Greece, which we understand to be a reference to wicked angels, perhaps even Satan himself. Daniel also prophesied that Michael, the archangel, the chief prince of Israel, that he would return at a later time to do future battle again. And here's how that reference is given to us. In Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1, it says, at that time, talking about the time of the future, shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as has never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Now, I believe that what Daniel is referring to back there is a reference that John is grabbing and saying, this is what happened. This is when Michael returned. Now, when Michael fights in Scripture, he always fights in association with the Son of Man, who we know to be the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what's happening in this particular vision. Christ has fought his fight on earth, on the cross. He won the victory over the dragon by his bloody sacrifice and his resurrection from the dead. And and Jesus' victory has unleashed Michael to initiate war in heaven. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7 says, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Now we know that some of the angels, going back to our little study of angels, we know that some of the angels did not stay within their given position of authority, but they rebelled against their creator. We call these demons, and we understand throughout Scripture that Satan is their chief. And John sees in this vision that Satan and his host of rebellious demons attempt to fight back, but they're defeated. They're defeated soundly. And and let's be clear here, what John is describing in this vision, in this battle, is he is not describing the fall of Satan and the demons in the beginning, He is describing the defeat of Satan and the demons at the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. Paul describes Christ's victory. Cody read it for us earlier. Paul describes Christ's victory and its spiritual implications in Colossians chapter 2 when he tells us that Christ has disarmed the rulers and authorities and has put them to open shame by triumphing over them. 
And that language of rulers and authorities is talking about spiritual rulers and authorities. The people in the church at Colossae are struggling with the worship of demons. And Paul is writing to them, helping them understand, don't you realize that what Christ has done on the cross and by his resurrection is he has defeated these powers. They no longer have the authority they once had. And that's all the way back in the first century. And he's talking to the church. He's explaining this to the church. And John is doing something very similar right here. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7 depicts the heavenly impact of what Jesus accomplished on earth. Satan has been defeated and the result of his defeat is that he is no longer able to have a place and a position in heaven. And I'm going to try to explain that. But here's what it says. He no longer has a place in heaven and so he was thrown down. So we saw a little bit about the war that has arisen in heaven. Now let's look at the dragon being thrown down. Look at verse 9 again. And the great dragon, which is a reference to Satan, as we'll see, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Now how are we supposed to understand this? How are we supposed to make sense out of all this? Well, let's go back to our understanding and study of angels and demons. We know, and Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 10, we know that Satan fell from heaven like lightning. But we also know throughout Scripture that Satan was permitted to appear before God. And when he did appear before God, his role was to accuse the people of God. He, he was accusing them. For instance, if you could think back to Job 1 and Job 2, in those particular passages, Satan was allowed to come into the presence of God. He was allowed to come into this council room of God, and he was allowed to take his position among the sons of God. And this is that, that phrase, sons of God, B'nai Elohim, it's a, it's a reference to supernatural beings. It's a reference to other angels. And, and he's allowed to take his position among them. And in so doing, he begins to accuse Job. And he doesn't just accuse Job, he also accuses God. He's, he says, you know, Job, actually it was God who decided. He says, have you considered my servant Job? And, and Satan says to him, well, he wouldn't be so upright if you didn't protect him all the time. So not only does Satan accuse Job, but then he accuses the father. So in Job chapter 1 and in Job chapter 2, we see Satan in his role at the hand of God as an accuser over the brethren. In Zechariah chapter 3, we see Satan once again in God's presence. This time, he is accusing Joshua, the high priest, and he does the very same thing. He accuses him of being an unworthy servant, and he accuses the father of putting up with him. Satan is known by many names. In this passage alone, we see him referred to in six different ways. He's referred to as the great dragon. He's referred to as the ancient serpent. He's referred to as the devil. He's referred to as Satan. He's referred to as the deceiver of the whole world. And he's also referred to as the accuser of the brothers. And this vision, I believe, is is intending to show us that his role as the accuser of the brothers had been his role but he has now lost that title. 
His privileges have been stripped away from him, and the decisive event that stripped away from him the power that he had to accuse the brothers, the, the, the thing, the event that occurred was the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me explain what I mean by that. By the way, we're going to get into a little theology here, but it's gospel theology. In the garden, Satan was already functioning as the deceiver and as the slanderer. Those are other names that he's given. He slandered the character of God by telling Eve that God was not being honest with her. He slandered the character of God by saying, God knows when you eat of this fruit, you will be like him. He made Eve believe that God was withholding something good from her. And then he deceived her into believing that God's word was not to be trusted. He said, you will not surely die when you eat this. You will be changed. So he not only slandered the character of God, but then he deceived Eve, and she ate of the fruit, then gave it to her husband, and they both went into a state of rebellion that we refer to as the fall. And that fall was, in in large part, initiated by Satan and his role. And since the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, Satan and his agents have done on a worldwide scale what started in the garden. And this is just looking at all of Scripture as a summary statement of his particular role. He has deceived the nations. He has tempted and accused the chosen people of God. We learned last week that he sought to put uh, God's Messiah to death. And when that failed, he tried to deceive the Messiah into joining forces with him. And over all of this time, Satan, as we would understand it, has at some level been allowed to come into the presence of the Father in order to make accusations against God's people. He accused them of sin, which was true enough, right? All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Old covenant saints weren't immune to that reality. And so his accusations of us being sinners, that's true enough. But in those passages where we see, Satan also calls for the penalty of our sin to be poured out on us, and he argues against the the character of God for not doing so. Here's Here's the logic. How could God be holy and forgive sinners? How could God fail to carry out his righteous judgment upon known sinners like you and I? That seems to be at some level the accusation of our enemy in the ears of our father. And here's the point. Until the death of Christ, Satan's argument was justified. Since God withheld the punishment that his people deserved. But when Christ gave his life as a sacrifice for our sins, what he did was he satisfied the righteous requirement of the law. He took upon himself the due penalty for the sins of all those who believe. He received in his flesh the judgment we deserved. And therefore, Satan's accusations no longer hold validity. It was the death of Christ that banished Satan from his position as our accuser. And Jesus even references this in John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, Jesus is is talking to the disciples and he's anticipating his death that is to come. And he says this, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out because he'll no longer have a place in heaven. 
And Jesus goes on and says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. The role of Satan as the deceiver of the nations will also cease. This world might view Calvary as the lowest point in Jesus' life. For in it, he was sentenced to die as a criminal on a cross. But Jesus sees Calvary as the high point of his work on earth. He says that he is glorified in his death because he's being lifted up on the cross. And by doing so, he has defeated the prince of this world, Satan, who then no longer has a place at the Father's side. And he is thrown down because of that. In his death... Christ paid the full penalty that God requires for our sins. Through his death, Jesus has stopped the mouth of the accuser, unleashed the host of heaven upon him, cast him from his privileged position, and then Jesus has taken his place at the right hand of the Father. There is no longer a place for the accuser in heaven because, as Paul tells us in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Paul goes on to tell us even more. He says this uh, later on in Romans chapter 8. He says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors by our great strength. No, that's not what it says. We are more than conquerors because we're just better than other people. Not what it says. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And Paul goes on and says, and I am sure, I am certain That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The picture that John wants us to see in this vision is that the the accusing work of our enemy is over. The Father won't listen to him anymore. And now... Our Savior sits at his right side and he speaks to intercede for our prayers and our needs. A massive shift has taken place in heaven because of what Christ has accomplished in his death, burial, and resurrection. Satan has been defeated. He is no longer able to accuse us in heaven. He has been thrown down, but he is still alive. That's what this text tells us. His deceptive work continues on earth. And in the weeks to come, we are going to see that he gives what is left of his power to the beast of the, air, or the, beast of the sea and the beast of the land. And those beasts come after the church. They come after believers. So that's the picture that we're seeing here in this war taking place in heaven. But even though Satan is not ultimately defeated, he still has one thing left, if you will. That doesn't stop heaven from celebrating. Look at the latter half of the section. Look at verse 10. It says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. 
That's an interesting phrase. Now the salvation and power and kingdom and authority of Christ have come. That's not referring to something that's coming in the future. That's referring to something that has taken place. And the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they loved not their lives even unto death. Now, a lot of what's in this section right here, I've already tried to explain. So I'm not going to do all of that, but I want us to remember what I said at the beginning of this. Remember that this is the beginning of a new series of visions. Remember that in this vision, we're seeing the beginning of the church age. And this is what took place. This is the decisive event that inaugurated the church age. And everything that follows is going to be for us as believers in Christ during the church age. The church age refers to the time between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming. And so this information, all of these visions and all of the instruction and all of the theology and all of the revelation of these amazing things are intended for us so that we can know the truth, we can be secure in that truth, and we can be prepared for what is going to come to us in this world. But all of this is telling us about what happened at the beginning. The salvation and the kingdom of God have come. The the authority of Christ has been established. The church has conquered by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. In other words, this is something that has happened, not something that is going to happen. This is the song of heaven. And it's interesting because we have to ask ourselves the question, who is actually doing the singing here? John tells us that it's a loud voice, but in the dialogue or in the, the verses of the song, we realize that it's, it's probably not the angels of heaven who are singing here. Because angels do not refer to the redeemed as brothers Other redeemed people refer to the redeemed as brothers. And so by them referring to our brothers who have been under accusation, we believe, or I believe, that this is referring to the saints of God who have already gone to be with the Lord. Whether they are old covenant saints who were trusting in the promise to be fulfilled, or they're new covenant saints that have have died in their persecution and been resurrected to the right hand of God. These are the saints of God who are crying out, We learn in Revelation 6 that the saints who surround the throne that have given their lives for their testimony, that they cry out for justice and say, how long must we wait? You remember that? Well, that's not the only song they sing. (laughs) They also sing this song about the victory of Christ over their accuser, our accuser. And look at what they sing. They sing about the fact that they have conquered by the blood of the lamb. That's a reference to Christ's death on the cross. They're they're conquering by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. The saints in heaven are covered by the blood and their testimony to the gospel has not been forgotten. And the reference to their testimony or the word of their testimony is a reference to the fact that they persevered in the face of temptation and trials. They persevered and held on to their hope in Christ, even in the midst of their persecution and suffering and even death. They persevered. They they weren't perfect, but they were faithful, and they didn't count their lives more precious than the testimony of their Lord. Brother, I hope and pray and trust that we will be faithful if that day comes for us. 
that we can count our lives worthy as a sacrifice for the glory of Christ and to hold fast to his testimony no matter what it might mean to us. And we need to prepare ourselves for that. This song is a song of the brothers who have overcome. They held true to Christ until the very end. Verse 10 is is not anticipating something in the future. It celebrates the kingdom that has already been inaugurated. And you may have heard it referred to in this way. It's the kingdom that is already but not yet. Have y'all heard that before? The kingdom was inaugurated with the first coming of Christ and his victory over sin and death on the cross and by the empty tomb. But that, that kingdom will fully be consummated when he returns and draws all of us in together to be with him. The decisive redemptive event that planted the flag of this kingdom was Christ's victory on the cross. The full reign is still to come. And that's what these brothers are singing about. But in the midst of their celebration, there's also a warning. And that warning, I believe, is intended for us. Here's the warning in verse 12. Rejoice, O heavens, O you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Cody brought us back to 1 Peter 5 earlier in our scripture reading, reminding us that Satan is a a lion roaring, prowling about, seeking whom he may devour. We learned about that last week. And I think that this vision makes very clear that the enemy is still roaring and prowling. He still has one tooth left. And for those who live on earth, we have reason to be on guard against him. We have reason to resist him and persevere in our faith against him. But we also know this, according to these brothers in heaven, his time is short. I know that's a lot to take in. What can we take away from this? As we conclude this morning, what are some points of application? What are some things that we need to remember and take away from this to prepare us for the rest of the day, for tomorrow? Here's two things. Number one, we should rejoice that our place in heaven is secure because of Christ. We should rejoice that our place in heaven is secure because of Christ. In verse 11, it says, and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb. Conquered, victorious, because of the blood of the lamb. If you belong to Jesus, if you have been born again by God's power to trust in Christ alone, then Satan poses no meaningful threat to you, for you have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. That means that our sins are paid in full. That means that the righteousness of Jesus has been credited to our account. There is nothing left for the enemy to accuse us of, at least not in the Father's ear. That doesn't mean that those accusations don't creep into our hearts and minds here. You ever have that feeling that you're just not good enough? You ever have that feeling that maybe if I'm, a, if I'm a true Christian, I shouldn't still be struggling with sin? I can't tell you how many times I've sat down with a brother or sister who makes that claim. And being a believer in Christ does not mean we're perfect. And it does not mean we will cease to struggle from sin. It actually means that we will continue and struggle against our sin for the glory of God by the Spirit's power. 
And one of the things we need to do as those temptations, as those accusations creep into our minds, is we need to remember the heavenly reality that those accusations hold no sway in the Father's ears. In truth, we are no match for the dragon. Right? We know that, right? I hope we do. But we don't stand against him in our own strength. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Satan no longer has any place in heaven, but brother, sister, if you're hoping and trusting in Christ, you do have a place in heaven. You have something he can't boast of any longer, and our place is secured, and nothing in all of creation can take it away from us, because Christ is the one that holds on to it. We can rejoice No matter the suffering we face, no matter the temptations we face, no matter the trials that we face, we can rejoice that our place in heaven is secure because of Christ. And that's one of the things that this vision teaches us. But there's something else. We must resist Satan, right? But we must not fear him. We must resist Satan but we must not fear him. He has come to earth in great wrath, knowing that his time is short. And we should, at some level, respect that. But we shouldn't fear him. Because the war in heaven has been won. The decisive battle that turned the tide of war has already fallen in our favor. Satan's efforts now are nothing more than the final attempts of a desperate failed power. He is powerful, he is formidable, but we can face our enemy with confidence in Christ, not fearing what he may do to us. Jesus makes it very clear there's only one that we should fear, and that's our Father. The writer of Hebrews says that we should confidently say to ourselves, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. That's Hebrews 13, 6, by the way. You want to memorize a verse today? You want to work on that for the week? Memorize that one. We should confidently say this to ourselves. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. We can stand our ground in this life knowing that we have nothing to fear because the Lord is with us and he has already won the battle. There is a type of fear that is good. And there's a type of fear that is bad. There's a type of fear that is sinister, more sinister than any other. And there's a type of fear that is more liberating than any other. The type of fear that is more sinister than any other is for us to fear a powerless agent. But the type of fear that is more liberating than any other is for us to fear the Lord our God and to love him the way we should. To fear the Lord your God and to put all of your hope and trust and life and eternity in his capable hands, that is a good fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the scriptures tell us. To fear God is to see that all of life is to be lived for his glory and not ours. To fear God is to embrace his son, Jesus Christ, as Lord and Savior. To fear God is to rely upon the power of his spirit and his word to sustain us no matter what we face in this life. And that's the fear we should have. Dear friends, let us fear and let us love our God who has defeated our enemy and who will never leave our side. Pray with me. Father God, I thank you for this passage of scripture. I thank you for your word and the truth of it. I pray that 
you would allow us not only to be thinking of these mysterious and deep things, but to be thinking on the hope that we have in Christ. Especially as Jeff prayed earlier, for those who've come in here that do not have that hope, for those who've come in here who, who are strangers to the covenants and promise, who are far away from the salvation that you promised through your son, Lord, I pray that that gospel, the, the truth of what Christ accomplished on the cross and our desperate need of it, I pray that that would reign in our hearts this morning. And I pray that you would prepare us for what is to come. We don't know what's to come. You do. And you want us to be ready. And so you reveal this truth to us and then you call us to faithful obedience. And so Lord, help us to appropriate these truths, to understand what Christ has accomplished, not only here on earth and in our hearts, but also in heaven. Our accuser no longer has your ear. Our, our, our Savior has your ear. And we are as secure as he is in your love. So let us love you rightly and let us fear you appropriately as our Lord and our God. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.